radio stations are ten a penny. Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station. There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. That stands out from the crowd. I want that one. All right. What is this thing? It's River Radio. There can be only one. One that's made entirely out of syrup. Good to be here on River Radio. How are you? I'm Deborah Fielding and this is Your Life, Your Way. How's the sunshine suiting you this week? I hope it's bringing a big smile to your face. Uh, let me know about your week right now, this very minute, by sending me a message and tell me how you're doing. That's Deborah at river.radio. I'm here every week sorting life out, chatting with you about this and that and my very favourite time of the week, as you know. So thanks to McFly, who head up your show with All About You. They start our show every week. And we're telling you stories on your life, your way. It's what we're all, all about, true stories. And we live our lives through our own stories and those around us. So understanding one another, well, it comes easier when we're telling each other our own tales, learning what we're all about, that we're more alike than you can imagine. So we're starting the show with the glory of the story. It's a great guest slot where you can hear a story about your guests that will be both true and owned by them which means it isn't anybody else's story but theirs. This week's guest has a story and a half, a story that keeps on coming at you. There's more layers than a chocolate gatto and more resilience to deal with life and what life throws at you, more than you can imagine. So straight after Glory of the Story, we have What's in a Word, where we're getting under the hood of life, one word at a time. Uh, Drop me a message to tell me where you are in the world, where you're listening from. We're full throttle down the Thames Valley, And the show is reaching further shores. Oh, yes, our ever-expanding list consists of Las Vegas, Atlanta and New Zealand, Turkey, Italy and Canada and South Africa's jumping onto the frame this week. Welcome to you all. So are you going to write to me this morning? Go on, you know you want to. That address is deborah at river.radio. You know I like to get your messages. In fact, the last section of the show would not be very good without you. Q&A your way where we get your lovely questions. So I need you. Here we go. Well, did you listen in last week? We had the wonder that is Gerald Ratner on the programme. What a time of it he had, carrying a half a billion of debt on his back after he made two jokes that cost him his business and his standard of living. Check it out on my podcast, search River Radio, Your Life, Your Way, on your usual podcast platform to listen into this uh, brilliant talk. It was an absolute humdinger. 
Now, on to today. My next guest has had a ton of life to deal with while always heading in a bigger direction than most. She's taken on the world stage a number of times and I've no doubt she will continue to do so, no matter what is thrown at her. So my guest today on Your Life, Your Way is forward-thinking Olympic medalist and ex-world champion rower, Sarah Winkless. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So Sarah, you've got a lot of Olympic and world champion things to talk about, along with several curveballs. What I'd like to know and where we'd like to start is if you can just tell us a little bit about who you are and your family before we get stuck into your story. Well, I'm local from Maidenhead. I make it onto the River Radio map, which is really (laughs) exciting. (laughs) Living there with a Labradoodle called Harlan at the moment, which is great. And I've got four, I'm one of four siblings. So I've got three um, brothers and sisters, two brothers, one sister. Nice big family. I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky to have a dad and a stepdad, both who have contributed hugely to my life. Oh, I I love that. Very nice. A stepmom, a Thai stepmom, and now... um, no, no longer hear my mother, but she was, and we'll, we'll talk about her later, won't we? We will, we will. Now, um, what I want to do is delve into your story, but before we dive in, um, I want to pick it up at age seven to eight, if you don't mind, and what you love doing. And if you're listening regularly to my show or podcast, you will know exactly why I'm asking this question. I'll explain all in a minute. So who were you at seven to eight years old? Oh, I'm going to have to pin that. So I was... Um, at school, um, like many others, I was at a, a state school in Thames Ditton, I think, at seven or eight. When, and I think I liked the breaks the best. I remember I, st- I, I was playing a little bit of netball. I just discovered that. And I was, I'm, I, we talked about, like Sam said earlier, how tall I was. Well, I was pretty tall at seven and eight. And I would chuck this netball at the hoop at break time. And I, and I really liked the fact that it gave me feedback. I, I could do it if I did it right or wrong and I could get better. Okay, and so there we have it. The reason I ask that question is we talk about every week on this show, Aristotle's quote, show me a child of seven and I'll show you the man. And there you were straight into your sport. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? It really is fascinating, yeah. yeah. So let's dive into your story and um, tell us uh, what you were up to and what you got up to and um, the main obstacle that came at you early on, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that seven and eight-year-old, that netball started to be the backbone of my sport so I loved team sports when I was a teenager yeah, amazing played netball learned to play basketball found that really really exciting um through the discus um so track and field was a sport again was doing my schooling you know that will work really well for me and I was kind of I think as competitive at my schooling as I was at my sport if you like I, I kind of had those two tracks going together and it kind of gave me control because at that point my parents, my my parents had split up when I was just three or four. My mum had remarried um, when I was actually just after that seven year eight right. year old. Um, I was lucky enough, and it's brilliant to have a little brother and sister born when I was eight and eleven. And so there was a sort of the family, sport, and and work were the sort of three pillars that I worked worked on at that point. And I and my dad and my stepdad they were both rowers. Um, oh, I my dad was a very good rowing coach. My stepdad had an Olympic medalist. That's very funny. It was, and there was no way on this planet I was going to be no. a rower. <laughs> okay, <laughs> because I just I loved variety. You can sort of hear that energy and. 
for me, when somebody said, oh, you know, you, you could be a rower, it was going to be something I had to do every day, all day. And I, I just didn't want to do you that as that, that teenager. No. You're right, you're yeah. right. So I kept my tra- double track work going on. I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to Millfield for my sixth form. Right, so okay. I got five extra hours a day because I was no longer travelling. Yeah. That allowed me to do well in my exams and I ended up at, at Cambridge doing my studies and I guess I tell that part of the story because at that point Cambridge is rowing is everything. It and is yeah. So was you, a, you landed really where you needed to be. It is interesting isn't yeah. it because there's a track into rowing that was not full time so there was something called college rowing you represent your college in rowing there's an amazing event called the bumps where you basically start back to tail to tail on the river and you try and hit the boat in front before the bump <laughs> boat, before you um hits you so it's kind of started by a cannon it's absolutely terrifying and yeah. you can do it rowing a little bit, not rowing permanently. So I thought, brilliant! I'm gonna gonna try rowing and just you know have yeah, it as have part a bit of fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as yeah. part of my sort of um, portfolio of sports, if you like, while I was doing my degree. And then, of course, I fell in love with it, which was not something I. Expected. I mean, really, it was in your DNA from your dad, and then it was into your step DNA with your stepdad. You were not going to escape it, were you? No, I think it's no. right. And I, I'd snapped my anterior cruciate ligament um, playing netball, so my that's in your knee. And what that meant was I couldn't change direction in the way I wanted to on the netball court and the basketball court, and actually I couldn't land in the way I wanted to in the middle of the circle when I was throwing discus. So those were my three really strong sports. And I guess we're talking about adversity. That was the first bit of adversity I I came across my my leg no longer worked in the way I wanted it to and I had to have an operation with a brilliant surgeon who who managed to make it pretty stable but you know I was 16 years old but you'd had three of the sports taken away from you which gave you straight focus into what you're you were meant to be doing. I think that's right. And you look at that, and I'd, I'd managed, I'd managed to get my blues at Cambridge. So I, I managed to represent the university in netball and basketball and athletics. But the thing I actually did and, and fell in love with was in the rowing and yeah. doing the boat race. I love that. I love how you've got into that because oftentimes we think um, adversity and having such a deep injury at a young age yeah. is just like the end of the world you can't function and it's just awful and you're too young to understand at that stage unless you're super enlightened that you know sometimes you're just being channeled into a direction that's absolutely yours yeah spot on and I remember you know just not really understanding that my body wouldn't heal itself you know they were going you snap your ACN and I was going oh good and um, will it heal when, how when do we, yeah, fixed, what happens yeah. and they're like no we can and I it, it did at the time I I'd never sort of had to be in crutches. I'd never broken anything. And that rehab, that time away from the things I loved, I didn't know what it was giving me. I was only aware of what it was taking away. And I was impatient. I was really yes. impatient. And I tried to get back to the sports too quickly, probably. And I, it meant that I had to have another oh, ACL crikey, crikey. 15 or 16 years later. But that, you know, that, yeah. that one did pretty well, I reckon. <laughs> So you're into rowing by this stage. Um, where did you go? Where did? How did you start? What, what happened? Yeah, again. So I did the bumps. Absolutely. The bumps. Brilliant. I love the idea of that. I always fancy doing that with my car. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Bit of fun. I should be on some drag racing or something. That's what I should be doing. You have bumper cars, isn't it? I like those yeah, as well. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. 
and and it was it was one of those things. It was terrifying. It was exhilarating. And I, I what I wanted to do that summer, and it was my first year of Cambridge, was I I still wanted to throw the discus for the Commonwealth Games. I threw far enough to qualify, but oh. didn't get selected. So there'll be oh. athletes out there now um, I know who are looking at Birmingham this year and thinking, oh, I could have been on that um, on that on that track and field on on that uh, circuit, and I. I, I was one of those athletes. I got selected as a non-travelling reserve. It was in Canada, and, and that meant I got no kit and I didn't go, essentially. Right, <laughs> so OK. So that was a blow, really? It was, it was a big... At that age, A yeah. big blow. But what yeah. it did mean was I stayed in Cambridge that summer. I did something called Dev Squad, which is their development squad, and which meant I moved from being rowing with the college to rowing in this development group, uh, went up to Nottingham and did the national championships in an eight was absolutely terrified because I was a sprint athlete. I didn't, you know, discus throwing, you do three ballistic movements and then three more of you, you're good enough. If you play netball, you know, I played it in one part of the court. If I play basketball, you can sub off at any time and rowing, you start. And then basically you go for six minutes as hard as you can. And I genuinely didn't know if I was brave enough or I was made of, proper stuff to be able to sit put my hand in that fire and, right. and do it and I was learning what my body was capable yeah, of. Yeah what your capabilities what your talents what your strengths were it's an ever-moving feast at that age. It really is it yeah. really is and, and it's, I get so cross because we quite often I hear people talking about an athlete or a young athlete and saying oh they're mentally tough or not and actually that's probably the experiences they've had up to that point. I was mentally I'm I, I, Looking back, I felt mentally hugely fragile because I'd never done these things before. Yeah. I didn't know the experience. I hadn't learned yet to yeah. to work in the right way. Well, I always remember you giving me some really good advice for my daughter when she was growing up. Um, she's actually a dancer now, completely out of the sports arena altogether. But you were telling me at a young age to just keep her as wide as possible, doing as much as she could. It doesn't matter if she's got a big passion for rowing. That's great. But keep her wide with everything else. And yeah. I think that was really sound advice. I've kind of adopted that a bit myself and tried to keep my network wide. And um, I think it's crucial you need to keep that brain stimulated and especially, oh, excuse me, especially at that young age, yeah. um, it's absolutely vital that they're learning and experiencing so that you can build that mental resilience up. And, and I'm, I'm curious that you say that dancing isn't part of a sport. No, sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I knew you'd jump on that. But um, what I mean is she's away from the sports arena and, yeah. and into a more of a, um, what shall we say, more cultural entertaining arena, I suppose. Uh, yeah. But you're absolutely right. She's She puts herself through it for sure. But oh. um, yeah. Uh, anyway, back to you. <laughs> yeah, I'm so impressed with dancers. And I, I worked with um, Britt Tajik Foxall, who was a sports psychologist at the Royal Ballet. So. Oh my gosh, don't talk to me on that topic. I know. It's my favourite thing, as you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was lucky enough, one, to go to the, with the backstage area of the Royal Ballet, and this is a couple of years later from when we're talking about, but um, also watch the dancers and do some Pilates with <gasps> oh them as gosh. well. So really, really impressive to yeah, see it is. how they, what they put their bodies through and it how is. they do it. And actually for me, I love to see that aspect of their their development, their training, as much as, if not more, than when they're on stage because um, their bodies are absolutely sensational um, and that's an amazing thing. But again, you know, it's exactly what you're talking about. It has to be built up over time. Yeah. Um, you can't just land in this role where you're mentally resilient, physically strong. That has to be worked at. Absolutely, and, and worked at every day. Yes. For hours. Yes. Uh, hours. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah. you ended up in rowing. Ended uh, up in rowing. Yeah. And I'm just wondering where your your big curveball came in, at what age you were when that arrived. Yeah, I was just coming to the end of my Cambridge career. I did had done three boat races. I, I thought I was going to go and get a real job um, rather than become an elite athlete because at the time there was no... It, if you wanted to, you had to get a job to be an athlete. There was no lottery funding at that point, although I was lucky enough that it came on board um, just as I left university. So I was busy thinking about what my next steps were. And when the years coming up to going to Cambridge, I talked about having those five extra hours a day when I was at, at boarding school. And, and it was because during those years, my mum had changed. Mum had changed deeply her Mood had changed, her behaviour had changed and, and her ability to be a mum had changed as well. And it it was gradual. And I think as a family, at that point, you know, I've got a big brother and there's myself and my little brother and sister. We just lived it and thought, well, that's how mum is. It's, it, we didn't know what was going on at you all. You don't though. tend to question things at that age, do you? We didn't question things and when, even when people would see her once a year at various things and they go your mum's changed is your mum all right we're going oh that's just mum that's how kind of how we talked about it. that's just mum that's what she does and it was in my last year at Cambridge we realized it wasn't just mum it was Huntingdon's yeah. mum had been getting ill um in those years a hole had been essentially appearing in her brain and we got this diagnosis finally and for me it was knowledge. It was power. It was. A, it was actually a really good, not not good that Mum had Huntington's, but no. a good thing that I could understand it and yeah. work with her in a different way. And so that was that was kind one of thing a big curveball. But yeah. with Huntington's, each one of myself and my siblings, we had a fifty fifty chance of having the gene. Um, so of the four siblings, you had a fifty fifty chance of having it. Yeah. And yeah, and what I, came next? Yeah. yeah, and I'm near the brain repair centre in Cambridge it sounds a very positive place so I hopped down there having been to the the GP because I wanted to get genetic tested I'm in my young 20s I want to know I want to know mm. I knowledge is power mm. you know let tell me whether I've got Huntington's or not um so I went through testing it took six months uh, the brilliant Anne Kershaw um had supported me through that and when I went to get my results I walked into the room I had a a friend with me who was supporting me through it had come through that process and the genetic counsellor couldn't look at me because I knew and they knew that they were going to have to change tell me something that I didn't want to hear yeah it's going to change your whole life it did and they told me that I too had the gene so what I'd watched happen to mum and we lost her three years ago now um from Huntington's will happen to me which is at 20 felt uh, okay fine in the future but, um, yeah, it was a tough, tough thing to hear. Yeah. And so you then continued with your rowing prowess with that knowledge. Yeah, and I think it gave me the freedom. I talked about maybe thinking I was going to get a proper job. And actually, it gave me the freedom and focus maybe to, to take a risk and do one thing. And what I chose to do is come down the road from here in River Radio Studio to, to Marlow to... Um, Longridge Scout Hut and that's where the British women were training at the time with Mike Spracklin and they had my my ergo scores were good enough and my results were good enough that I was 
considered of someone who could come and train with that group, which was terrifying and exciting in the same amount. Yeah. And I, I thought I'd give myself a year and see if I could make the squad or, yeah. or make it as a rower. And that's kind of amazing. Well, it is amazing in all in all shapes and sizes. But to know that you you're dealing with Huntington's, in a way, maybe rowing was a good outlet from that as well. And what you were seeing your mum go through. Yeah, I, and it gave me confidence that my body was okay. If I yeah. could learn a new sport, we talked about stretching ourselves in different ways. I I wasn't an expert at rowing at all at that point. I'd done three boat race campaigns in an eight, so I was getting better, but. I was having to learn to be in a pair, so that's just two people rowing or in a single on my own and all of those skills I was having to learn. So I, I, even now I make sure that I learn new skills all the time. I don't just keep doing the things I've done before because otherwise I won't stress myself. But at that point I was really stressed myself. And the other thing when I look back is I didn't share. I didn't share what I was going through emotionally with the group. I wanted to appear bulletproof potentially larger than life I think yeah. fine um all of those things and it probably made me a, a, a difficult character to turn up in a in a training group I think okay yeah uh, because of what you were withheld from them or yeah I just didn't quite know how to fit in I guess anyone who's hiding a part of their life yeah you get isolation don't yeah. you and you're self-monitoring all, well, all the time we're going to listen to Mo Farah this evening telling yeah. us exactly that how it shuts you off from the world because in a way you I don't know why we do this I've talked about it so many times with people on this show you kind of feel like you're the only person in the world going through it, and that's never true about anything but yeah. that's how you feel um so I don't know where that comes from in us but you know, to isolate yourself from the rest of the group must have been quite a lonely experience. It was, and, and I guess it meant that I, I didn't quite fit in socially with mm. them as well. I, mm. Yeah, I didn't. I, I was a scientist, a bit of a, a geek, if you like. I was trying to be cool and fit in. It was, it was like being at school again, I yeah, think. Yeah. Um, the squad had also had fantastic results the year before I joined, which was, right. which was great. But that had also, I think, people really wanted more of it and they didn't necessarily want a newcomer taking their places was the yeah. feeling at the time. And you've got to fit in and start to build up quickly because they want to protect that um, success that they've yeah. had. Yeah. So we're just going to take some music while Sarah's here with us and we're going to start with uh, She's a Star by James. <laughs> Feeling empty 
This is James with She's a Star and that she is the superb Sarah Winkless MBE, my guest on Your Life, Your Way. So Sarah, you've been rowing at a top level, dealing with Huntington's disease and the uncertainty that that's bringing you. Uh, when you're hit with another life crisis, but before we get to that, tell us where you went with your rowing, because we're all really keen to know what that is. I know that one year at Longridge turned into 10 years on the team, or 11 years, <laughs> I think. It was, you know, you look at um, anyone who does something as a subject matter expert or something, and you just, there's a seductiveness about getting better at something, getting fitter, getting stronger. And we made it, um, that, that group that I'd struggled to get into became my, my best friends and my, my work colleagues. And of course. it was yeah. extraordinary. So, yes, I managed to go to three Olympic Games, uh, seven World Championships. It took me an awful long time to get them onto the podium. But when I did, it was it worth just, everything. Yeah, worth every stroke. Oh my goodness! And I can't every even blister. imagine. I can't imagine. I can't even imagine just being there. You know, let alone um, working as hard as you did to achieve what you wanted to achieve. Yeah, and and it was. It was lots of long hours, learning, trying to learn from each other, with each other, and also getting out of my own way. I had a huge. Uh, am I good enough in that first bit as I turned up here at um, Marlow and, and Longridge, and I think. That really drove me. I wanted to, it made me work hard. It made me ask lots of questions, but it also stopped me being a, a, a great team player. It's quite amazing to me when I speak to so many different people. And one of the common threads, and it is for me as well, is how we stand in front of ourselves and say, stop, you're no good, you're no good, <laughs> you're rubbish, punch, punch, punch. Um, if we could just get rid of that and recognise it sooner life would be infinitely more easy, wouldn't it? Yeah, and spot on. And I, I work with lots and lots of executives now and we talk about the imposter syndrome and how they feel around that. Yeah. But at the time I had no language for it. I just knew that my motivation was a bit dark and twisty, but I thought it was quite <laughs> useful. <laughs> I, I love that you said that because um, one of the things I've certainly struggled with over time is my brain's like a firework display and I have the most ridiculous thoughts in my head sometimes. But then when you get chatting to other people, it's not that ridiculous. We all go through it and learning to shut it down and move it to one side is the key. Yeah, spot on and, and optimising your thinking as yeah. much. And I talked about the Royal Ballet and Bridget Tajik Foxhall. She did some amazing work with me to help oh, me optimise my thinking. Say, I am super jealous. <laughs> I am. <laughs> um, yeah, so you've had to command your brain and really utilise it. Um, you've had great success in your rowing, which is just fantastic. Received an MBE for all the work that you've done. Um, and life's going along and you're progressing out of rowing whilst having that in the background. And then what happens? Well, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because oh. stepping out of rowing and feeling that everything is... I, and feeling well with Huntingdon's was was good as well. Well, that's an achievement on its own, right? So you're you're being successful at rowing, but sex, successful at managing Huntingdon's and getting to grips with all of that and what that means mentally for you. And, and also being able to make a little bit of a difference to the community. So, all of that, you know. And, and we talked about isolation earlier. We did a really nice hidden no more campaign and tried to help. So there's lots of things going on in my life. And then last year, um, last 
probably April, I found a lump in my breast. Right. And that takes you on a whole different... I mean, that's a curveball beyond curveballs. It takes you into the depths of I don't know where, really. You do learn a lot about yourself at that point. Yeah, and I, I look back and... I thought I'll just monitor it for a couple of months, just check, just check, you know, see see what's going on. It was during the pandemic, you didn't want to be a trouble. The NHS were hugely stretched and I thought, this is nothing, I'm I'm just, I think it'll be fine. Because to be fair, you can have lumps and bumps that turn in, that are actually nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess uh, I waited three or four months and then I went to the GP and it was this time last year, um, just before we were running Henley Royal Regatta, which was in August last year, that I went to the Royal Berkshire, which is where I was born. And the first doctor who saw me thought, everything's fine, don't don't worry. And the last doctor who saw me said, no, you've got cancer. We need to come and see you again next week. Right. Well, thank goodness for him. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So you went on a journey from there, um, as all breast cancer and cancer patients do. Um, and I can't believe that's just a year ago yeah. that's amazing and and genuinely I feel so fortunate because I I just I felt I had such good news every time after the you've got cancer that wasn't good news no. but it was amazing because I've had two major things that I've been told as a, a person you've got Huntingdon's and you've got cancer and with Huntingdon's or I've got the gene for Huntingdon's there's nothing that they can do at the moment so it's they give you this information but there's there's genuinely nothing that that I can take there's nothing that we can do to take take away that gene it's just something I have to manage and live as well as I can and hope I stay as well as I can for as long as I can mm. I get told I have cancer and it was amazing because they and right and we've got a plan I was like my god I've got something wrong with me and you can help okay, okay. so it was a, such a different mental piece and so that's a very different approach to most people that are diagnosed with any kind of cancer you know because you've hit a brick wall with Huntington's yeah. in effectively for now anyway at least um but there's everything going on with cancers there's treatments for this that and the other and you're, and you're really delighted about that <laughs> not not delighted that. but but it was a very different feeling yeah and I, I love that and it felt every stage i got good news yeah we can do something oh okay brilliant i've got cancer but you can do something what, what can we do okay. well that's just it just shows you that how you perceive something is everything because yeah. it's not great to be diagnosed with cancer. You've no idea where you're going to go with that at all, especially at the beginning. Um, and yet you're feeling relieved and that's giving you a whole different approach to it. Whereas for some people, it could take them down a big doubt yeah. rabbit hole that, you know, you, there's no escape from. Yeah. Um, and that just, you, you know, you can carry that into any area of your life in a way. Yeah. And, I, and it's interesting. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, I, Decided to gnaw it for a week and go and run Henry Regatta and be yeah. part of that and then engage with the doctors properly and understand a bit more. So I, I wasn't 100% the best pa- patient, I don't think. No. Because I, I I think I took a bit of control, but it was, as you say, you can use it in any area of your life. You, you can, can either look at the bits that you can't do or where you can't control or you can kind of go down the road. What's what's the steps I've, I can take in this bit? And I actually would change my diet quite a lot. I learned um, a, a load around what you, a body needed or didn't need it when you had cancer. And I didn't know how to feed a body with cancer. I knew how to feed a body to make your for brain as, as well. for sport and yeah. for your brain, to yeah. keep your brain as healthy because I've, I've learned quite a lot about that. But I didn't know around that. So yeah. 
yeah, obviously took the traditional route and um, I've had lumpectomy and radiotherapy. Very lucky. I didn't need um, chemotherapy. A blessing. A blessing. Yeah. On endocrine therapy, but also trying to keep myself as well as I can as well through making sure I eat the right foods and um, manage my stress, I guess, is always the one. that I think so. I think um, certainly stress in your life has got to be um, taken under control. And interestingly... Some things that you would have found stressful previously, you just think, I'm not even getting involved in that. It's got to just sit at the side here and behave itself. Yeah. And you move through. And I think the biggest stress I, I found was not knowing the timetable of everything. So I wanted to keep my life going as much as possible. Well, Sarah, that comes from having a wrong timetable <laughs> and a plan to get to the Olympics mapped out before you. And you don't always have that in everything yeah. in your life, do you? And it's true, isn't it? And yeah. I had to learn to be a bit more flexible. I was, I had to flex my the things I wanted to do and what my body and the cancer needed yeah. to make sure that I was doing the right treatment and operations on time and in full. As somebody said to me a few weeks ago, you know, if you were a thoroughbred racehorse, Deborah, you wouldn't be flogging yourself the way you are. You would be resting, you would be nourished, you would be cared for. I thought, oh... That's absolutely right. And so those are the times that pull you up short when you've got a big diagnosis like that to deal with. Um, And you have got to reevaluate where you are, both physically, mentally and your environment around you, in fact. Yeah, and I was was hugely lucky. I'd moved to Maidenhead. I had a good environment around me and friends around me who were fantastic. And a lovely dog. And Harlan. Yeah, (laughs) who kind of carries you through everything. Now, you've picked a great song today. I'm really on board with this little... um, song we'll be right to play which is I Want It All by Queen let's have a bit of that
the voice of the Thames Valley. River Radio. I think I like it. Uh, you give one quick twitch and the thing is done. So, thank you for listening to Your Life, Your Way. And that was Queen with I Want It All, which we do, Sarah, we want it all. <laughs> thank you for that choice. Uh, thank you for listening to Your Life, Your Way at River Radio with me, Deborah Fielding. And my wonderful guest today is the amazingly determined Sarah Winkless. So if you want to listen again to Sarah's words of wisdom, you can find me as a podcast, search for River Radio, Your Life, Your Way, Deborah Fielding, or you can hop over to the website, which is river.radio and listen again, which brings us straight into what's in a word. We're moving at pace this morning. So this is the part of the show where you and I break down a word and chat about what it might mean for you. And this week I've chosen a piece I wrote for my breast cancer community, lovely enough, It just seemed very apt today and my guest Sarah Winkless embodies the word invincible. So let's dive in and see what that means for us. Dive in to River Radio. So this is a very short and sweet post I wrote and it's called Invincible. So all of a sudden I'm not invincible. Life is not forever. Of course I knew that. It's just that now it seems my life is not forever And that's different. Let's ring it out every single day. All of a sudden, I'm not invincible, but I'm going to love every day that I have as though I am. Um, So I wrote that for the mental well-being of some breast cancer community. And Sarah, I feel that you've you've had a maxed out life, uh, but one that you're also keenly aware of. You're not invincible with either. does that live around your shoulders or do you largely leave it to one side? How does that work? It's interesting, isn't it? I think having watched Mum do the Huntingdons and she did as much as she could for as long as she could. She gave, was an amazing role model with that, a pain in the neck some of the time <laughs> <laughs> because you know, she fell over and cut herself and ended up in hospital, but she she didn't let any of that stop her. So I think... that. When you're not invincible, she, she seemed invincible, though clearly she wasn't in, invincible in that way. And I think I, I, I hopefully hold the same piece. The Huntington's for me, I want to make a difference to the community. I'm passionate about people who are going through the same thing that my family have gone through. But um, it, that, that for me helps. But generally, I think for my, my wellness with Huntington's, I, I push that to one side. I, I don't spend time worrying and thinking around that my, my kind of belief is actually when I start to get ill from it my brain will protect me so I won't notice so I'm, I might not bother looking at this point other people may may notice and, and want to tell me but that's an, another conversation we yeah, have sure. but I think with the cancer was it was a really different it was a smack in the face a, a shock at a, a point and I remember sitting on a beach and I I'd gone we'd gone to Cornwall and I was trying to spend a few days just getting my head around the fact that I had cancer and and you know I, I was going to have to go down that path and I remember looking at all these different strangers and thinking how many people have got stuff going on for them that they oh, they don't know and it was yeah. a really interesting piece because it it was omnipresent for me because yeah. I think Whilst I felt it was fantastic and lucky and they could move things through, it was also a shock and difficult and, and, and that system. So now, a year later, or nearly a year later, I feel, again, that's on the side. I, I take um, endocrine therapy, so I take a drug every day, so that's different, I suppose. Um, but I, apart from that 
popping that pill into my mouth. I, I genuinely you just move on. Just try not to think about it and yeah. make sure I'm doing the right things to live the life I want to. Because who knows how long it's going to be? We don't. None of us do, right? Yeah. I think I always say we've only got this very moment we're in. We don't even know what we've got this afternoon. You know, we're just moving on through life. And I think it does bring other people in, their lives into sharp focus for you, because. Um, it's a silent thing, you, you know, you don't walk around with a sign over the top of your head. I think some people are going through some enormous things. Um, and when you've been through something sharp like that, it kind of gives you that understanding, I think. Yeah, and empathy maybe. And I think curiosity so. Curiosity as well. I think so. And a, um, a lack of judgment of others, I think, comes really swiftly alongside that. Mm. Uh, I found a great little song um, called Invincible, so we're going to run that now. That's by Eddie Vedder, and I've never heard it before, but I really absolutely love the sentiment behind this. Can you hear? Are we clear? Clear for liftoff. For making reverberations Are we affirmative? No negatory Come in, come in Radio, what's your story? Are you Oscar Kilo? Will you Wilco? Are you ready for a bit of A bit of Michael Victor? I'm just going to mute you, Heather, in the background for a sec. That's right.
Oh, don't you just love that? Welcome back to Your Life, Your Way with me, Deborah Fielding. You are listening to Eddie Vedder and Invincible. Uh, I've never heard that before, but I really just love it. <laughs> um, something certainly when you're younger, you feel invincible. Um, but as you have a few life experiences, you realise you're not. Uh, so before we get stuck into Q&A Your Way, let me tell you, I'll be on River Radio again this Saturday with Izzy Holmes from 8 till 10, which is always a light-hearted, fun start to the weekend, just to ease you in. Uh, We have Heather in the studio later, uh, straight after me with Turning Pages. That's up next with Julian. Um, Now, I know you love your questions, so here we go. Um, We've got a few in this week. Um, Let's start off with the first one, which is from Sybil, who's writing in to let us know that she too is dealing with Huntington's and has found this being... That, that she's found being part of a community has been a mental saver for her. Uh, well, I would agree with that, Sybil. I, I think that is the biggest thing for all of us in one way or another. And I think Sarah's a good place to mention some charities for Huntington's that maybe um, people can tap into. Um, yeah. yeah, who do you who do you align yourself with? Yeah, so the Huntington's Seas Association down here in England, and yeah. I'm actually patron of the Scottish Huntington's Association. Right, and. Looking after the whole family is critical for for both those charities. I know thinking about the carer, thinking about the patient, thinking about um, the kids and 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 anyone else who's in the family system to yeah. make sure that they get support as much as the person who's who's ill. I think that's vital. Yeah. So uh, the Huntington's Disease Association is hda.org.uk. Putting you on the spot. What's the Scottish one? Can you remember? I'm going for SHA. If you look at Scottish Huntington's www.sha, and I can't remember the other bits. Yeah, but, but you'll find it if you Google it. Yeah. Spot on. Um, and it's the same like for breast cancer diagnosis as well. I mean, I work largely with Maggie's, um, who are phenomenal for all cancers, in fact, and do exactly what you've said. They look at the whole family and because it does affect everybody um and it's important that we all plug into each other and keep strong during that time so that's a pretty tricky one um ian wrote in to say that he remembers those heady days of feeling invincible as a child and as an adult he doesn't feel his life has been that great oh ian he worries about things and hasn't got the same belief in himself as he had when he was a kid He goes on to say that he's full of admiration for you, Sarah, for taking life full on and stepping into the arena that you love. Um, Well, that feels a shame that you feel like that, Ian, really. Um, While we're talking about community, maybe that's something that will bolster you up and return your confidence to engage you with life um, like you did when you were younger, maybe, when you had your crew of friends around you. I run a Women's 50 Plus membership and I'd invite you perhaps, but they might object a bit to that. But I'm sure there's plenty of other things out there, similar men's groups. So Sarah, I wonder, quickly, being part of an Olympic and rowing family, who were your community? How, How has that helped you over time to deal with the big things that you've had to deal with? Oh, you know, and I think listening to Ian as well and his, you know, I, I talk about my sports psychologist. I had not one but two who really helped me with my thinking when I was perhaps feeling anxious. I had an amazing guy, Ian Dryden, when I first got my Huntington's diagnosis and I was on the rowing machine and it got a bit painful, got a bit difficult and I stopped. I was like, there's no point today I've got Huntington's. <laughs> he just went, not today you haven't, get back on. I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> Drama queen moment yeah. Yeah, ended. So he gave me a kick at the right time rather than a cuddle and people knowing what you need at the time and being, being utterly grateful for them and then 
there, there's some famous names that I, I'm very lucky to spend my time with because I, I rode with them over the years and they've become my community, my friends, my holiday mates. And um, so I feel very, very lucky. Yeah, and so that gives you a different um, community around you altogether. And I, I'm really convinced that building good, apart from your family, but having great friends and a wider circle than that, it's vital to keep you going. I certainly know that helped me through my own breast cancer diagnosis and, you know, having people that can understand your background, Sarah, your rowing background, so you're still friends with your rowing fraternity. Um, it's a vital thing to plug into. Yeah, it is. And I've got another group of friends. We call them S-Cube, Sam, Sarah, Sally. We met when we are 16. Our worlds have gone all differently, but you know, one of us is in Australia now, but you know, those, those long-term friendships as well as the new friendships are critical. They're so, so important. And people who are going through shared experiences is really helpful because it's, you can just start to go, oh, you guys, you think that, that you, you have bad days too. All of those things are so, so it's not just me. It's not just me. You've got it too. And that makes me feel included, validated, loved, cared for all of those things. Um, I'm looking at our friend Ian here. I think maybe, I'm reading between the lines because I don't know you, Ian, and I don't know what's going on. But ultimately, don't isolate yourself just because you feel like that. Plug into some other group or uh, community that's local to you to keep you uplifted and um, inspired, I think, to build a better life for yourself. I think that's where we're at here. Um, So, Sarah, just really quickly, what's the next big thing lining up for you? For me, um, well, today I'm going into London to work in leadership and coaching. I'm commentating this year on the just um, for rowing, just on the um, World Cup and later on into the World Championships. And just you know, later on this month, I'm going to be at the Commonwealth Games as an ambassador for the next generation of sports people. Oh, see, I love that. I love that. You will always underpin new people coming through. Um, you know, I'm just such a big believer. Whenever you get wherever you're going, put your hand down and pull others up with you, and you do that to perfection i love it yeah that's fantastic well we've come skidding into um the end of your life your way i mean i can never believe it i i always say that i think we should be having two hours on this show i mean you know i can talk for britain maybe we should push it to three i don't know but um here we are coming up to the end so we've had the fantastic sarah winkless on um your life your way it's finito for another episode uh, thank you, Sarah. It's been fabulous to have you in the studio and I wish you an absolute ton more of success and everything that comes to you may be with bells on. It's great to see you listening to the podcast. Search for River Radio, Your Life, Your Way or Deborah Fielding and click the favourite button. I'm Deborah Fielding. I'm wishing you a week of having it all just like Sarah. We're playing out this week with Duran Duran and Ordinary World. Or should it be Extraordinary World? I'm going to let you decide on that one. Escape the ghost of you
Windsor, Windsor. Ascot, Ascot, Maidenhead, Maidenhead. Bracknell, Bracknell. 